Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Uh, Father, Among the many remarkable things uh, in the story that you tell us in the scriptures is the idea that you are not nearly so far off as you sometimes seem, but rather you're a God who seeks after us, who comes to find us, like a shepherd comes to find a sheep. And you come to find us through Jesus, and right now, you come to find us by your Holy Spirit, and we ask you to come and find us. Wherever we're at, whatever we're going through, whatever position we're starting from, will you come and meet us precisely at that place? We, are, we sometimes imagine that we can seek after you, and there's a little bit of truth in that, but it's not nearly so big a truth as the fact that we've got to be found. So find us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And uh, if you would, please turn back to page eight. That's where we're going to spend most of our time, though we will also turn back to page uh, seven, the uh, story of Ezekiel. Let me set up um, what we're going to be talking about uh, like this. Uh, one of the marks, I think, some of you who are artists, you can tell me if this is true or not, but one of the marks of true beauty, as far as I can see, is that the more you look at a really beautiful thing, the more beauty you end up seeing. Uh, so my experience is not an artist, but when I go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, for instance, I find it an overwhelming experience. Uh, for many reasons, but one of the reasons I find it an overwhelming experience is that none of the pieces of art that I find in that museum are kind of like one and done sort of things. Uh, in each of them, the more you look at them, the more beauty that you see. 
And therefore, it's kind of overwhelming because there's so much of it, so little time, all of those sorts of things. But I think that that's part of how truly beautiful things work. The more you look at it, the more beauty that you end up seeing. I think there's something similar that happens in the natural world. Uh, why is it that uh, scientific investigation uh, is, is never finished, it's always provisional, it's never boring? Well, part of the reason I think is that the more you look at the natural world, the more you discover, the more that you see, and therefore the scientific endeavor is never done. And why am I saying this? Well, because we're, today we're looking at uh, the passage where Jesus rolls out the Lord's Prayer. Uh, here, the Lord's Prayer that's in this reading is a little bit of a simpler version of the Lord's Prayer. The Gospel of Matthew has a fuller version of the Lord's Prayer. But in both situations, at one level, they're very simple prayers, right? It's easy to memorize this prayer. It's probably one of the most, I expect it's the most memorized prayer in the history of humanity. Maybe there's something else, but I can't think of it. It's very simple. But yet on another level, Christians have been mining this prayer for 2,000 years. We've been praying it every day. We've been reflecting on it. We've been writing about it. We've been preaching about it. And for 2,000 years, the more that we look at this prayer, the more that we see. And the reason for that is that it is a truly beautiful thing. And today what I want to point out is, is something of of why this is true. Um, here's the simple reason, and then I want to flesh it out. Of all of God's gifts that God gives, the most beautiful gift that God gives is himself. Uh, God gives lots of different things to us, right? Uh, God gives us life. God gives us relationship. God gives us a career. God gives us uh, the natural world. He gives us his commandments. God gives us many, many, many different things. But of all the many things that God gives us, the most beautiful thing that God gives us is God gives us himself. And prayer is one of the primary ways we receive that most beautiful gift. And that's one of the reasons why the deeper we go into prayer, the more that we discover because it's a truly beautiful thing. Now, that's the idea. Let me flesh it out a little bit. Uh, come with me into the passage. Look at the beginning of that second reading on page 8. When the scene opens up, uh, Jesus has been praying by himself for a little while. Uh, that happened all the time. Jesus spent a lot of time by himself praying. But his disciples see him coming out of his prayer time, and, and it kind of looks like they're a little envious, or at least they're a little curious. And they say, Jesus, um, can we get in on that? Um, would you teach us to pray like you pray? It's a little bit like they say, um, Jesus, we want a relationship with God that's a little bit like your relationship with God. Will you bring us into that uh, privileged space? And Jesus doesn't skip a beat. He rolls out uh, the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray like this. And then he tells them some stories that are meant to build their confidence in God, uh, that God, or that God really wants to answer our prayer. One of the things that's really clear about Jesus is he is not interested in us praying timid prayers. 
Jesus wants his followers to pray, to pray with boldness and with confidence. And let me pause here and ask a question, Emmanuel. How bold are your prayers? Or think of it this way, on a scale of 1 to 10, evaluate your prayer life. On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that God is actually paying attention when you pray and really wants to answer the prayers that you pray? What do you think? And if you look in your, in your prayer life and you get a low confidence-ometer reading, like you're just not very confident that God actually wants to answer your prayers, then pay attention to this passage. Because one of the things that Jesus wants to do is he wants to persuade you that your Father in heaven loves to give his very best gift, and he wants to give that gift irrespective of how worthy you are or I am. Let's go further. Take a look at the last bit of Jesus' teaching. Verse 11. Jesus says this, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, it will instead of a fish give him a serpent, a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, it will give him a scorpion? Now, you see his point, right? Um, no good daddy sits, you know, gets up in the morning and, and his little kid says, you know, Daddy, can I please have some scrambled egg and a side of Cheerios? Um, no good daddy says, well, I was thinking of you should play with a cobra instead. How's that? You know? Um, and did you know that daddies don't even need to be taught not to do that? Like, it's just straightforward. It's like baseline parenting, right? You don't give your kid bad things. And there's something deeply instinctive within a parent that you don't want to give bad things to your kid. Well... Jesus asks, if that's what you expect from a baseline parent, what do you expect from God when you pray? Because the expectations that you bring into your prayer life reflect what you really believe about God. So, if, do you expect God to give you better gifts than a human parent? Or do you kind of underneath the surface at a level that you wouldn't even really admit, do you sort of believe that God kind of likes giving you something bad or nothing at all? Emmanuel, one of the reasons we pray timid prayers or one of the reasons we simply just don't pray at all is because deep down, many of us are afraid that God is either not listening or if we open ourselves up to God, he's going to give us something bad. And we don't want that, and so we try to evade. And I'd encourage you to ask the question, how much of your prayer life, how much of my prayer life is sabotaged by secretly believing that God's either stingy or cruel. Look at verse 13. Jesus continues, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give? And then stop right there. And don't look at the passage. Stop looking at the passage. What do you expect God to give you? What do you, how do you expect that line to end? 
I sort of expect something like this. How much more will your heavenly father give you the stuff that you want? Or if I think that that's a little not quite pious enough, I might expect it to go like this. How much more will your heavenly father give you the things that you really need? Like medicine or something. Or how much more will your father give you good stuff that isn't that good, but God says it's good, so blah, you know? Now, that might be what Jim would expect. Gives you an insight about Jim, doesn't it? But look at what Jesus actually says, because he's way more specific and I think surprising. He says, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now, why does he say the Holy Spirit? Apparently, Jesus thinks that of all the many good things that God gives us, God's very best gift is the Holy Spirit. God's very best gift is himself. Why? Well, there's a backstory. And the backstory comes out of our first reading. So turn over to the first reading on page 7. Uh, this reading comes from the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel's writing about 600 years before Jesus, and, and he's writing at a really low point in the relationship between God and Israel. Here's the background. Uh, in the Old Testament, God had rescued Israel from Egypt many hundreds of years before this, and Israel and God had entered into a very special relationship. Uh, the relationship is called a covenant relationship. And what happened is after God uh, liberated Israel from Egypt, God promised uh, to love Israel and to take care of Israel. And uh, Israel promised to love God and to, this is very important, Israel promised to represent God's character accurately to the world around them by obeying God's commandments. That was part of the plan, so that God, through Israel and through Israel's life and choices and, the, and the, their obedience, God would uh, kind of go public with who he really is to the nations around them. Now, the problem is, by the time we get to Ezekiel, everything's gone very, very badly. And part of what went very, very badly is that Israel ended up misrepresenting God's character. Or the biblical language is God, or Israel misrepresented God's name. Israel falsified who God is. And they did that through their, uh, through their corruption, through their injustice, through their sin. And God's not pleased. And therefore, God holds Israel accountable. God dismantles the Israelite nation. Uh, they're defeated in battle. Eventually, they're uh, sent into exile in various places. Ezekiel is talking to a group of, of uh, the nation of Israel who are in exile in Babylon. But the question is, the question that hangs in the balance is, what's God going to do now? Is God just going to swear off Israel, divorce Israel for forever? Because he has grounds. Well, this is when there's a twist in the story. Because in this passage, it's a little bit like God says, well, if I swear off Israel, if I, if I divorce Israel forever, that would falsify my character, falsify my name, misrepresent me even more than it already is. I'm going to have to deal with Israel's sin and injustice. I can't just overlook that. And yet... At the same time, 
It's as if God says this. In verse 23, God says, I am going to vindicate my name, not by throwing Israel away, not by stepping away from Israel, but rather by stepping toward Israel. And I'm going to roll out my very best promises. I'm going to promise to give Israel my Holy Spirit, and I'm going to give my very self to the people of Israel. God says, I'm going to do a remarkable thing. I'm going to reach inside Israel's heart, and I'm going to transform them from the inside out. Because up until this point, and part of the reason that Israel had consistently rejected God is because their heart was stone cold towards God. But now God says, I'm going to reach into their inner, the inner part of who they are, their deepest psychology, the level of desires and what they prefer and what they don't prefer and what their, their deepest orientations. And God says, I'm going to reach in there and I'm going to give myself into them so that their, uh, hearts are warmed towards me and softened towards me and so that they begin to love me and not reject me. In other words, God promises to give himself to Israel and to draw them into an, a relationship with an intimacy that was unprecedented before this. And God resolves to do this not because they deserve it, but despite the fact that they don't. God says, I'm not going to do this because of who they are and what they've done. I'm going to do this because of who I am, my own character. Because God is the God who gives himself to the unworthy. And when the world sees God giving himself to those who don't deserve it, that's going to be a crucial moment of displaying who God really is to the wider world. Now, do you see the point? It's precisely when Israel is most corrupt and least worthy, that's the moment that God promises the Holy Spirit. Meaning God promised to enter their lives personally and to flood their hearts with undeserved love so that they find themselves loving God back with all that they are because God has given all that he is. And God promised to do that because of something good in him and not something good in us. Now keep all that in your mind and bring that back to Jesus. Because Jesus wants to enlarge the expectations that we have about God's gift. And he wants to deepen the confidence that we have that God really wants to deliver it. And the bigger expectation is this. Jesus wants us to know that God wants to give us himself. Whatever else that God wants to give, and he wants to give us many, many things, God wants to give us himself in love, which is God wants to dwell within you. God wants to flood you with himself with his uh, personal affection. And when he does that, you'll find yourself wanting to love him back. And you'll look at God and you'll see that he is the object of your deepest heart desires. Jesus wants to take your expectations and expand them. But he also wants to deepen your confidence that God really wants to deliver. Why can you be confident that God really wants to deliver? Because God promises it not on the basis of something in you, but on the basis of something in him. 
Just think about this for a minute. If I think that God only is going to answer this prayer if I measure up, then I'm never going to be confident uh, that he's going to deliver because I'm never going to know that I'm good enough. And if I think I am good enough, I'm going to become an arrogant, ridiculous jerk. But on the other hand, if I depend upon God's character to give me this great gift and not upon myself, then that means that God's promise stands even when I fall. And that makes all the difference, Emmanuel. And that's part of the point of Jesus's kind of odd story about bugging your neighbor at night. Did you see that? Take a look at verse 5. Jesus says, basically, you know, when, uh, imagine uh, your neighbor comes to ask you for bread at night. Um, even, if, even if somebody comes over to your house in the middle of the night and you don't have any bread, you go to your next-door neighbor, you ask them for bread, they're eventually going to give you bread, um, maybe not because they particularly want to, but because of, uh, because of a sense of honor. Um, now, what's the point here? Um, this is not teaching us to uh, go to your next-door neighbor at 2 in the morning and knock on their door in your apartment building. Don't do that in New York City, okay? Remember that this was, <laughs> Jesus is writing before the invention of the 24-hour bodega, okay? So take advantage of modern conveniences. Um, th the point is that in this culture, uh, hospitality is how you display honor. And a lack of hospitality is how you dishonor yourself. And so the point is, you, if somebody comes and asks for food, you better deliver. Your honor is on the line. And you'll, do, you'll deliver food even if you have to bug your next door neighbor because you know that their honor depends upon delivering some bread. The point is, Jesus is saying you should ask and you should pray and you should seek and you should do that with all diligence and with deep confidence because God has promised to deliver and to give you the Holy Spirit on pain of his own honor. And that leads to a question, Emmanuel. Have you ever asked for the Holy Spirit? And have you stopped asking for the Holy Spirit? If you've never asked for the Holy Spirit, start. If you stopped, start again. Ask, seek. And then let me ask this, do you really believe that God is committed to giving you the Holy Spirit? And do you know what the best measure is that God really is serious about giving you the Holy Spirit? It's the fact that God has skin in the game. Did you know that God has skin in the game? Remember in the, in the, in the book of uh, uh, Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to have to deal with Israel's sin. I'm going to have to cleanse them from their sin. Uh, in order to give them the Holy Spirit, in order to give them new hearts. Well, how does that happen? We find out later that that happens at the cost of the death of Jesus Christ. God literally has skin in the game. God came among us and sacrificed himself in the person of Christ so that our sins could be put away in order that we could be brought into an intimate relationship with God as our Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Put differently... Jesus died to give you the Holy Spirit. Can you see how committed God is to this? What's it like when God gives us the Holy Spirit? Uh, many, many, many things. More than we can talk about now. But one of the best ways to describe what happens when God gives you the Holy Spirit is to look at the Lord's Prayer. 
the Lord's Prayer becomes vivid. Take a look at it. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, when you pray, say, uh, Our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's the place to start. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, what happens is that uh, Jesus Christ, who died for you and who rose again, is in a way taking you with his arm around your shoulder and saying, let me bring you to my father. I'm going to share my own relationship with the father with you. Do you remember the disciples? They watched Jesus praying. They're like, hey, Jesus, can we get in on that? We want a little taste of your relationship with God. Well, that's exactly what's happening when you pray. Jesus is taking you into his experience of the father's affection. Jesus is saying, let me show you who my father is. He's more beautiful than you can possibly imagine. And the more that you look at him, the more beauty that you're going to see. Jesus will say to you, I have arranged your adoption at the cost of my own life. And that means that my father is now your father. Can you see the beauty of his name? Can you see the beauty of his character? And then as Jesus is pointing you to his Father, the Holy Spirit is at work at the same time within you, warming your heart to the Father. And you find yourself saying something like this, yes, Jesus, I'm beginning to see the beauty of your Father, and I'm beginning to call him my Father. And the more that I look, the more beauty that I see, and it makes me want to honor his name. I want to honor his character, and I want other people to honor his character. And so I want to pray that his name is honored in this world. And it doesn't stop there. The more I think about his, uh, the honor of his name and his character and the beauty that he is, the more that I realize that to live under his authority is what true freedom looks like. To live under his kingship is what true freedom looks like. And therefore, I find myself praying, let your kingdom come. Because I honor your name, let your kingdom come in this world. Exert your authority because it's what freedom looks like. See, that's what the Holy Spirit begins to do in you. And that kind of prayer is usually called worship. It's the soundtrack of the Holy Spirit. Can you identify with that? But we can't just leave it there. Because the Holy, if we just leave it there, it'll kind of seem like the Holy Spirit is simply uh, about giving us a kind of mystical experience. But it's a lot more gritty than that. Because the Holy Spirit We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit when we're hungry and when we're guilty, when we're hurt, and when we're tempted. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit when you're hungry. That's why it says, give us this day our daily bread. Just think about it for a minute. As humans, we all experience scarcity. We are all, we we get hungry, we need clothing, we need housing, we need medical care, uh, we need jobs. We need to be taken care of in our school situations. We need all of these things. And when those needs become acute, um, we're going to feel anxious. We're not going to feel spiritual. Uh, However, when you pray, we get to invite the Holy Spirit into that experience of need. We get to invite the Holy Spirit into I don't know what to do with these bills. We get to invite the Holy Spirit into, I don't know what college I'm going to next year. We get to invite the Holy Spirit into, I hate my job and I don't know what to do about it. 
We get to invite the Holy Spirit into all of those experiences because the Holy Spirit wants to transfigure those experiences of anxiety into houses of worship, into places where vantage points from which we get to see the goodness of God. God's goodness will be displayed in your life, not simply in the high mountaintop experiences, but in the valleys of despair when you find that God is your shepherd in that place. Give us our daily bread. But also when you're guilty and when you're hurt. See, when you sin, and you're not going to want to run to God. You're going to want to run away from God. Uh, however, the Holy Spirit wants to fill you in those experiences when you want to run away from God. And when you're hurt by somebody, you, you're not going to feel spiritual. You're going to be tempted to harbor bitterness. But once again, the Holy Spirit wants to enter those experiences of guilt and those experiences of hurt and transfigure them into houses of worship so that you see the goodness of God from the vantage point of your, uh, of your moral train wreck and from the vantage point of your deepest bitterness. He wants to draw you into an experience of the Father's affection so that you are flooded with forgiveness. And as you are flooded with forgiveness for yourself, you find yourself desiring to extend that forgiveness to people who don't deserve it any more than you do. And as you forgive people whom you have good reason to hate, that will be one of the key ways in which you represent the character of God in the midst of this broken world. We gotta be filled with the Spirit when we're hungry and guilty and hurt and tempted. Tempted. Lead us not into temptation. When I'm tempted by evil, when I'm allured, it's always that I'm tempted to think that there's something better than God. There's something better than God. I'm thinking in this moment that this particular pleasure or this particular comfort or this particular path to success or this particular little tiny cheat can get me something that's a little bit better than God. But when the Holy Spirit fills you and when you see the beauty of the Father, and when you see that there's more beauty in the Father, the more you look at him, then you will also see the ugliness of sin. And that's how the Holy Spirit leads us not into temptation. So Emmanuel, I want to know today, can you see the beauty of God? And over the course of your life, are you beginning to see that there's more beauty than you've seen up until this point? And do you find yourself allured to him? Ask for the Holy Spirit. Because God's done everything necessary to give you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will bring you to Jesus and you'll rediscover the cross. The Holy Spirit will lead you through the cross to the Father. This Holy Spirit will show you the Father's beauty and you will find that he's more beautiful than you know and he's going to meet you in your life of prayer. So come and seek be found and find. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. 
Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.